Well, Professor Hartberger, as you know, my name is Richard Just. Uh, I've uh, been given the privilege of being able to interview you here today. I look forward to that. This is Professor Arnold Hartberger of the UCLA, longtime professor and now emeritus professor at the University of Chicago, former uh, chair of the Department uh, of Economics at Chicago, uh, a major influence in many developing countries with uh, his uh, economic policies and through many of his students that have multiplied his efforts as well. So we're very happy to have you here today and look forward to our interview. I want to start out with some general questions. I might just mention a few of my questions may cover some things that are in your publications, but I'm interested in maybe some retrospective elucidation and uh, maybe uh, taking advantage of your many years of experience. So I'm first going to ask you just a couple of really general questions. Uh, one is to start with, uh, how would you characterize the value of applied welfare economics amongst all the other areas of economic pursuit? I think it is um where I feel this is that the other areas of economic pursuit are like the machinery that lies behind. And the one that digs the ditches and shovels the snow and sprays the water and all of that is at the point where these things are applied. And at that point, uh, applied welfare economics jumps in on top of the other machinery that it inherits from the other parts of economics. I think that's a sensible way to say it. I think many would agree that since Alfred Marshall, you've probably been the leading spokesman and example about how to keep welfare economics simple and practical while expanding its breadth, for example, in the direction of general equilibrium and in those directions. Uh, in his critique of the three sides of Harberger Triangles by James Hines, he said this. He said, what made Harberger's efforts so influential is that they identified straightforward methods that can be used in spite of the difficulty of measuring compensated demand curves. Do you agree with that statement and that your work is focused on the application of welfare economics in developing simply defensible approximations while accommodating increased generality? Well, I think uh, sort of yes and no. Certainly I uh, deeply agree with the need for simplicity as you actually do applied work. But as in everything else, uh, the art is to, when you're simplifying, you're oversimplifying, necessarily oversimplifying a complicated world. And the art in dealing with any problem at the theoretical, empirical, or applied economic level is to oversimplify in an artful and useful way versus oversimplifying in some dumb crazy way, which happens a lot too. Uh, your th uh, very seminal three postulates paper addressed five major criticisms of consumer surplus, which were being used at the time to argue that welfare economics, econ applied welfare economics, should be abandoned. Uh, the first of those was the requirement of constant marginal utility of money. 
which uh, you addressed basically by showing that consumer surplus was at least a second order approximation in place of the first order approximation supply or applied by uh, income, uh, social income accounting. Implicit in Hines statement though is the notion that using compensated demands is more accurate although more difficult uh, as an approach. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? Well I think uh, first of all most demand functions that are measured measure compensated demand because they hold real income constant. And if the price of your commodity rises, real income is going down. And uh, that is piece is being absorbed in the real income part of the picture. And what you've got on the relative price variable is indeed a compensated uh, story. Second point is that I don't know why people in teaching all these complications about compensated and uncompensated don't get to the absolutely simple thing that for an ordinary demand curve in an ordinary circumstance with not worrying about other commodities and other markets and all that, that the uh, elasticity uh, including the, uh, the compensated elasticity is the uncompensated elasticity minus the marginal propensity to consume the commodity. Now uh, the marginal propensity to consume the commodity is the average propensity times the income elasticity. So the average compensity is going to weigh tremendously there. So, I mean, salt uh, is nothing. Bread is nothing. Uh, uh, restaurant meals, trivial, maybe 3% or 4% of your budget might be spent on restaurant meals. Cars might be 5%. Houses might be 10, 15, 20% of, depending on how you count housing. But uh, even there, any, uh, the, so if the uncompensated elasticity for housing were minus one, the compensated elasticity with a 0.3 marginal propensity would be minus 0.7. And that would be an utter extreme difference. So people worry too much about it. And I think they, if they would only understand this little trick, they would stop worrying and they would be reasonable about it. The use of compensated demands as, uh, as, as an accurate measure uh, of Hicksian surplus and willingness to pay and willingness to accept uh, as thought of by many economists as an alternative way of dealing with that requirement of constant marginal utility of income. Uh, would you basically give the same answer in terms of comparing and contrasting your philosophy of welfare economics uh, with that of uh, Sir John R. Hicks? No, I would not. Uh, I think that the, the key feature in, in my story is the numeraire. And the numeraire, to be practical, has to be either the CPI or the GDP deflator. And that means you're taking a vector of prices in a two-dimensional space. You just draw a bunch of angle lines and that each one is a higher level of income and uh, 
Now you ask, well, what about people's utility? People's utils, your utils are measured in different units from mine and different units from somebody else's. But guess what? We all transform our marginal utility into the numeraire at the marginal utility of income that we have. So uh, the, the, once we've decided we're, use, we're measuring in terms of the numeraire, it's hard for me to see how we're measuring in terms of each one's utility or we're not, we don't have to face the problem of intercomparability. This is done by you and me as we transform our marginal utilities into the numeraire index. Well, just to push this a little further, an issue that comes up in the context of willingness to pay and willingness to accept is always a compensation and whether compensation should be paid. And uh, what's your thought about that? Uh, I, I think that the stand, if we believe that applied welfare economics can be used to show the beneficence of free trade, the beneficence of good competition, the efficiency costs of monopoly, and so on and so on. What we're doing is using the adding up property and uh, all of the standard inherited messages of applied welfare economics have come from that line that they, if, if you were not uh, ad using the adding up property, uh, they wouldn't get the results that uh, everybody from David Ricardo to hoteling and whatnot uh, got. So uh, I want to stick with that long tradition and face the issue of uh, equity problems in a more, I think, sensible and practical way. You seem to be telling a story of, uh, of, of approximation uh, that uh, would you regard, for example, uh, Hixian's four consumer surpluses as basically more detail and you need to worry about at a practical level? Absolutely. Um, and what are your thoughts about the, the Willig results that basically uh, show in his consumer surplus without apology that consumer surplus is at least an approximation of the uh, of the Hicksian concepts. Do you, do you see the Willig results as another justification for consumer surplus uh, and or uh, an approximation of the uh, of the two approaches? No, I think they I think that they definitely are what what he says, you know, uh, and uh, the the uh, uh, image that I have is that you have this grid with a lot of diagonal lines being at, at different levels of income and you have a bunch of indifference curves and if you have a given set of prices as of this thing you have an income expansion path along that line and then you say well how do we get into places that are other than that role of tangencies, well, we're going to have different distortions, taxes and subsidies, and they will create angles with our standard prices, and you have an income, in, income expansion path along those angles, and when you play with the mathematics, you get the one-half dpdq, so to speak, 
out of just that. It's very simple, can be even taught in what first year courses, if you, if you want to push it, certainly can be taught in EC 101. Uh, and uh, I don't think you have to go significantly further than that uh, to get into deeply what to me are deeply philosophical issues rather than robust practical stuff. James Hines in his critique of the three sides of the Harburger Triangles again states that uh, much of the literature since the 1980s seems to hint that estimates of deadweight loss triangles based on Marshallian and Harburgerian demands rather than on compensated demands reflects the use of subpar technique. Of course, in earlier times, at the time he wrote the three postulates, it was really quite difficult to measure compensated demands, but there's been a lot changed with the developments in the 1980s and various techniques. Does that change your view about whether it's too much uh, difficulty or too much detail to worry about the compensated demands or the... No, I mean, I, I told you, if, if the difference between the elasticity of compensated demand and the elasticity of uncompensated demand is, zero point, is 0 0.02, uh, a thick pencil will cover that difference. And even if it's 0.1 or 0.2, the order of magnitude of the resulting triangle is going to be hardly changed by uh, this story. And uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, the, the picture that I drew of the parallel lines and whatnot and whatnot is perfectly rigorous and is not, uh, needs no apologies of any kind. Uh, and I think that that's actually what for example, Hotelling in his famous 1930-something article was along that same line. The compensation principle is something that troubles a lot of applied welfare economists. Uh, came out of the work of Calder and Hicks and Skotowski, of course, and, uh, and within the willingness-to-pay justification is a major justification for the aggregating of willingness-to-pay and, and as an approach to welfare economics. Uh, in many of your writings, you use a concept of neutral transfers, uh, which you use as a justification, I think, for overlooking distributional considerations to focus on uh, on economic efficiency. Uh, how do you compare those two? When I say neutral transfer, neutral tax and transfer, I think of a module that uh, we are going to raise a tobacco tax which we are going to spend subsidizing milk for babies. So we raise the tobacco tax and we get a rectangle of revenue which is a, uh, we have a triangle of loss to consumers and producers of tobacco which are not compensated by gain to the government, and then we get a rectangle, which part will be from producers, part will be from consumers, and all going to the government, and uh, that's the picture. And the idea of neutral taxes and transfers, we're going to give back the part to consumers to them, and we're going to give the part to producers back to them, so that they are all on their uh, compensated demand curves. Uh, now, but 
if we want to do this a different way, the government has the money, we haven't given it back, and now the government is going to spend it on this milk program. And you're going to get a triangle linked to the subsidy of milk, and you're going to get this rectangle going to producers and consumers of milk uh, because consumers are paying a lower demand price and producers are getting a higher supply price. So we merge these two modules and we get the tax going to the milk subsidy. Uh, but it would be absurd to have our tax analyses go through repetitive examples of taxes going to milk subsidies, taxes going to farm subsidies, taxes going to foreign aid, taxes going here and there. We need this neutral thing to make a module out of it and to have a neat process of just being able to merge these two modules and get any source of revenue linked to any use of revenue. So you're saying basically there's a whole mix of other government actions that can bring about these neutral transfers independent of... Well, they don't bring about neutral transfers, but, but we can use the... We, we use the gimmick of neutral transfers in order for us to say this tax on tobacco has this effect and this subsidy to milk has this effect and we're kind of isolating it from other pairings. So we have a whole list of places from which we can get money and a whole list of places to which we can spend money. And instead of having n times m combinations, we just have n plus m combinations of each one separately, neutrally. And then we make the n times n as we need to by creating each pair of source and use. Uh, I might want to come back to that a little bit later if we have time, but uh, I wanted to turn to your second major, uh, the second major criticism of uh, consumer surplus that you addressed in the three postulates, which of course was the lack of uh, applied welfare economics as it was traditionally practiced to consider income distribution at all. Uh, in fact, your third postulate in the three postulates paper was uh, you should simply add the benefits and costs without regard to who they accrue. What mine? Uh, really? uh, well, right. It was, <laughs> Be historic. Uh, right. Um, as I understand it, again, one of your major rebuttals to that point had to do with a second order approximation versus first order approximation uh, that's provided by national income. But later, uh, for example, in the 1978 JPE paper, you addressed uh, distributional considerations where you talked about sensible ways to consider distribution as opposed to using distributional weights. I guess the first question I want to ask here is, have you found that policymakers are very concerned about distributional consequences in your direct interactions with them? Well, uh, <laughs> I was just in the uh, Ministry of uh, Social Development in Chile, former planning ministry, where cost-benefit analysis is being done. And somebody had been analyzing a project, not in the ministry, it was an outside entity had been analyzing the project. 
And they didn't have things they called weights, they had things they called factor. And the factor was actually the equivalent of a distributional weight. And uh, the factors went from 0 0.3 to something like 9 or 10. And uh, uh, I pointed out that let's say we have a weight of 10 uh, going to this poor person and 0 0.3 going to the rich person. So <clears throat> we take uh, $1,000 away from this rich person and uh, that gets a weight of uh, 0.3, so that's 300 is the cost. And then uh, how much do we have to give to the poor person in order to uh, match that? Well, it turns out that if we give three to the poor person who has a weight of 10, then we, we match the cost. So therefore, we could lose 97, or did I say 1,000 or, or 100? What? A thousand. A thousand. Ninety-nine point seven. Is that right? Of uh, uh, in 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 the process of making this transfer, and we would still be barely acceptable. If we lost only only ninety-five in the transfer, this would be a wonderful project, and the government really should do it. The people who play with distributional weight somehow, as a class and I'm speaking very specifically of the people who did the optimal income tax literature where they come out giving, uh, peaking, I mean, <laughs> the solutions that pique your curiosity and are kind of cute of, they like taxes which are Decrease, uh, regressive in the marginal rate while at the same time being progressive in the average rate. Isn't that a nice intellectual toy to play with? And so it gets all, but these guys never think that with exactly the exponential weight functions that they use, they could get into worse cases than the one just given. I mean, the, since it go, goes to in, infinity, all, all of these exponentials go from zero or asymptotic uh, uh, to both axes in the end. So uh, uh, it, it's just that uh, uh, either somebody has to say, well, we like distributional weights for making income tax rules, but we don't like them for these other things, or else they just have to say, well, uh, what I say is if you use them for making income tax rules, you've got to use them everywhere. But on the other hand, can't a welfare economist find him or herself basically irrelevant if they don't take account of some of the political realities of concern for distribution? Well, concern for distribution does not mean distributional weights. Right. That's the main thing. And I believe that we have 
a, a, a sensible alternative, which I call basic needs, mm -hmm. externalities. And the big key to basic needs externalities is that it is not a weighting of the utility of the recipients. It is a weighting of their welfare as judged by others. Others being the government, others being the taxpayers, others being the voting citizens, however you want to make it. And my example is that whereas anybody concerned with the utility of the recipient basically must say giving them money is the best you can do. Why is it then that when we provide for public education, we say the kid has to go to school. We don't give the parent the money and say, well, you can have a party or send your kid to school. You, that would be a utility approach. We say, send your kid to school or else you, he doesn't get anything. Medical care, you send him to the doctor or he doesn't get any, anything. Housing, you occupy these public housing facilities or you don't get anything. You see, nutrition also comes in the same thing, which we can talk about later. Uh, but uh, considering externalities based on what society is willing to pay extra to see something happen so that uh, uh, one practical way to go about this, which some of us worked on for the Philippines a long time ago, is you can think of dividing your income stream into deciles. And you say, well, let's look at the nutrition. Uh, what are we willing to pay extra to see somebody move from nutrition level of the first decile to that of the second to that of the third? What are we willing to pay for somebody to move from, from housing level first, second, and third? Those premiums can be determined in different ways, but I think uh, uh, may, maybe the minister of, for cost-benefit analysis can do that. Uh, maybe the cabinet can do that. Maybe the president can do that. Maybe the legislature can do that. Basic idea is that these premiums would start higher than they end. That is, they would be kind of evaporating as somebody's consumption moved up to an acceptable level. Well, I noticed uh, one of your suggestions in the paper on distributional weights was uh, basically to have a two-dimensional measure where you calculate the welfare for those below the poverty line separately. And uh, in that context, and the policymaker can take into account exactly how much the trade-off is as opposed to oh. attaching a distributional weight for aggregation. Oh, I think that that, uh, I mean, I didn't remember that being there, but, but it's perfectly straightforward, and it's exactly the kind of thing that we often choose to do, and that is we tell the policymaker the facts and let the policymaker decide. That's really what that would uh, be the, about. The question I have is about expanding that principle uh, to the case where a lot of us work within a, a sector, 
and uh, one of the major concerns to policymakers is producers versus consumers for an example in agriculture where politicians typically want to have subsidies for agriculture. Uh, would you say that that's an appropriate approach there to calculate the welfare separately? And well, then, for example, uh, uh, I think that what, what you're saying there is uh, what we call a stakeholder approach. And what it amounts to is when you do the supply and demand story and you get the efficiency effects that we measure in applied welfare economics typically, uh, you also then get these rectangles of, or trapezoids, or parallelograms, they take all kinds of shapes, of uh, benefits and costs to specific groups. And to the degree that you can quantify them and just put down a whole list of all of them, uh, wonderful, but I don't think that's necessary. I think doing it for a series of groups that are of particular political concern is a perfectly straightforward way, and we don't have to put weights. We can just tell the authorities this is what these people are gaining and or losing and see what happens. Very often in the process, my colleague Glenn Jenkins works a lot with this and he works a lot around the world with real world stuff, that sometimes you, you have people block a project because they're being adversely hit and in the project design then comes ways of sweetening the pie for them, not compensation in in, in, in the Hicksian sense, but uh, finding ways to redesign the project so as to eliminate that objection or to make it sufficiently less forceful that the project can still go through. So uh, I guess one question I have is where it's a reality that policymakers have concerns about distributional issues uh, of, of one sort or another. Does it make sense for applied welfare economists to do more work along the lines of basically uh, painting the picture of a surplus possibilities frontier for politicians than we do? I don't like that. Uh, it's too ambitious. You're way out there. You, a, a frontier, you're, you're, you're talking about everything. Uh, you say, well, what are politicians interested in? And, and we say, well, they're interested in poverty. Hell, they're interested in votes from Ohio and, uh, for, and Florida. And, and uh, I personally would not feel good about making a particular weighting system about beneficiaries of these particular groups in Ohio and Florida who might vote one way or the other in the next presidential election. And yet that's part of the way that, that politicians think. So uh, I think uh, that concern with poverty, uh, concern with basic needs is perfectly sensible and honorable <laughs> and uh, as you get down into the nitty-gritty of how uh, historically many politicians have thought, uh, I say, well, let, let them hire their own flunkies to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
As an alternative to yeah. economists developing distributional weights, what do you think about some of the studies that have tried to uh, estimate policymaker preferences and impose those as a way of aggregation? Well, I mean, I think if if you think of this as the policymaker as helping the policymaker, that we really are, Mr. President, trying to reflect your preferences, and we see that you're doing this, and we see that you're doing that, but we find a sort of contradiction here. You see, we we would like to resolve, so we have to talk this one over. To it seems it's, it doesn't seem to fit logically uh, uh, in, 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 into the picture, and. Uh, I think very often, when, when we talk efficiency, what we're always saying is you don't want to be paying $1,000 to achieve an objective when you have available a method that costs $150 to uh, 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 affect that objective. Uh, I think that same sort of thing applies when it comes to helping particular groups, that uh, it doesn't have to be the expensive way. And uh, when, uh, uh, I mean, I say to a long-standing person with agricultural background and agricultural economics background that, that uh, uh, when, when we get to ethanol and food stamps, both, uh, are kind of crazy in terms of the applied welfare economics of the thing. <laughs> uh, we have plenty of uh, missionary work to do uh, to, to, to get straight thinking across into these areas of helping people at cheap minimum cost. So just to summarize, uh, for cases where there are clear gainers and losers, uh, I get the impression that you think it makes sense to look for other ways to combine policies that bring about uh, effectual uh, redistribution when it's, when it's needed as opposed to uh, using the Hicksian concept of lump sum transfers. Well, no, I mean, I think, I think the Hicks-Calder thing is, does not re ever think of compensation, at least the way I've always thought about it. In terms it's of the potential, the, the potential of compensation, yeah. and not the actual of compensation, and the reason why that works, and certainly in the great transformations that we've seen in the developing world, I mean, from crappy, crappy economics and crappy economic policies to pretty good economic policies and good growth and emergence from poverty and all of that. Uh, doing enough good things is going to probably end up with most groups gaining without going nitty-gritty as finding in each thing you've got to compensate with something else. You see that the compensation is a kind of a broad sort of thing when you're doing the right thing in economic policy. On the whole, there will be widespread benefits. Now, where does that lead you? But Specific groups can be left behind, and specific groups can be left behind that we don't care much about, or 
specific groups can be left behind that are really serious objects of policy, like um, disadvantaged poor and so on. I'm thinking the the rich bankers are the ones that were left behind in the recent crisis. Nobody seems to be shedding a tear about any any of uh, of of their uh, potential uh, problems. So I gather that uh, you basically think the potential compensation criterion ought to be dropped. I know there are just no. not not used or what. No, no I think. The, the, I mean, the main thing we do is is measure efficiency cost, and and it, when you do efficiency cost, you weight everybody with one. Okay, well, that's okay. okay. That's not quite and, my question. And, and then, when you are concerned with the fates of, uh, you hope that packages of policies broadly and, and the process of growth itself leads to acceptable results, all, what is it, a high tide lifts all boats or something like that. Okay, so there we are. Uh, now, when you have groups that are left behind, when there are groups that have always been left behind but now all of a sudden become visible, become vocal, become the interest, uh, uh, the, 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 the objects of concern, uh, then you sort of try to focus on them and you try to find reasonable ways of ameliorating uh, their problems. I think uh, the, the people in public schools in bottom 50% of districts in most countries these districts are in areas where uh, parents don't pay too much attention, parents don't guide, they, they don't have much pre-guidance in educative ways. They're not being taught to read at age three and so on, as they are in Scarsdale or something like that. And uh, there tends to be a lot of uh, roughness and crime and goodness knows what. Uh, uh, these are serious problems, and they're problems all over the world, and uh, we don't really have very good ways of dealing with them, but certainly if you want to look for a place which is crying out for some imaginative way of surmounting even a good chunk of this massive problem, uh, I think it would be a blessing that would be, you know, one of the blessings of the century. My question is about, you know, the potential criteria, uh, potential compensation criteria, and basically says disregard income distribution, don't worry about it, whether there's leaners or losers or not. No. And I don't think you feel that way. Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 that, that I say the measurement of efficiencies issues is an objective in its own right, which should be done without concern for any compensation matters. That's efficiency. This is an efficiency cost. And this is what we measure, and this is how you do it. And the idea that you're going to compensate everybody, that's impossible, mm -hmm. even possible to think about. Uh, the guy that 
you should always think of all the groups that are going to be effective. No. You should think of only the groups that are problematically affected. Are you going to do something about them? Maybe, maybe not. Is that part of us? Can we formalize that? I don't think so. But we can bring it to the attention, and we can certainly measure the effects of these, of a given package of policies on these vulnerable groups. That for sure. Okay. Uh, the third criticism you addressed in the three postulates paper was basically about the partial equilibrium shortcomings of the way applied welfare economics was typically practiced. And uh, again, uh, I think your response in that, uh, to that point was probably the most important point of the paper uh, as I evaluate it. But uh, uh, was it your intention to replace the focus on Marshallian consumer surplus conditioned on fixed prices in other markets with a general equilibrium concept that took account of the relationship of marginal social value to marginal social cost as influenced by changes in a particular policy instrument. That is the way that, that I think and that if you read the different articles that I have written about taxation, we, we put on one tax and we get a triangle. Now we put on a second tax and we get a triangle there, but we get a little rectangle here or a trap. Uh, a, a parallelogram or a trapezoid. Then we put on a third one and we get a triangle there and we get two rectangles and so on. And uh, this is general equilibrium. And I think you can see that what I'm thinking is that it's as in a reduced form situation, the instrument that we're playing with is the tax rate. And we can think of the tax rate as being imposed like a 10% tax or more elegantly squeezed in as in an inter line integral. You squeeze up the tax rate to, to generate a triangle and uh, uh, the, as you move to into a rectangle or a trapezoid thing, we're, we're, we're changing the price of beer and we're looking at what happens to the demand for wine and the demand for wine. If beer price is going up, the demand for wine will go up, but it will go up where at every point in the raising of that tax on beer, the person who jumps over to wine is just barely indifferent at that point. You see, it's an elegant, sweet concept. And, and uh, uh, I think of this as being kind of absolutely, people have to understand that story in order to understand applied welfare economics well. And so my, my question to you then is, do you think most economists or a major majority have regarded that paper as more of an argument supporting consumer surplus, too often as it's traditionally thought of as based on fixed prices, than a general equilibrium approach to welfare measurement. And specifically, I have in mind, well, are I too mean, many people still using a partial approach? Yes, but, but I, I think, again, you're, you're worrying. Uh, I'm going to say that the triangles that you would get based on fixed prices and the triangles that I would get with my reduced form approach are order of magnitude 
probably not significantly different and and uh, uh, I, it's a little bit like the compensated and uncompensated thing uh, uh, that isn't the a big point of worry. The big point of worry is that what what you're dealing with are uh, increments of the, of quantum, which entail both demand and supply being equal or both ends, and then where the valuation of that increment by the suppliers is different from the valuation of that increment by the demanders. Now that's true in all of these concepts and the little subtleties about exactly how much are you moving at each step, uh, you have to work hard to find a, a problem where your your conclusion about the problem is going to be changing if you change some of these assumptions uh, just a little bit. Uh, well, let's take, for example, Harberger triangles. And obviously, some people apply those at a partial equilibrium, you know, partial equilibrium context. And, Harberger triangles, if and, and some do in a general equilibrium context. Well, just for purposes of discussion, uh, uh, let, let's use that as a terminology, at least to discuss it. Uh, but you seem to be saying that you don't think in practicality the difference in whether it's done at a partial equilibrium level or general equilibrium level makes that much difference. Oh, no, no. That's, 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 <laughs> that, well, what's the difference between the partial and the general equilibrium level is that the general equilibrium level, you take account of pre-existing distortions which are affected by your move, and if you're just doing a partial, uh, you don't. And uh, so, again, uh, I think it's very tricky. You look at uh, the, the tax on telephone calls or something like that. You put the tax on telephone calls and you're looking at the telephone call market and you've got this triangle. Uh, when I'm teaching in class and I just have that triangle, I'm telling my students, if the only tax we have is the tax on telephone calls, here is what it looks like. It stands alone. Another way to say this, if this is in a general equilibrium situation, and we have this tax, and it has ramifications in other distorted markets, that these other ramifications sort of cancel out. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say at, to the class at that level. But that same class should be taken through an analysis which says, well, when we put this tax on telephone calls, and we have an already existing tax here and another already existing subsidy there and already here. This is how we are supposed to take those ramifications into account. And somebody comes and he says, well, these things can be infinite. And I say, well, if you're a damn perfectionist, you're probably right because the DXJDPQ or something like that 
is probably not going to be precisely zero. But if you're ready to say it, little ones can be swept into under the rug and you take into account those places where A, the thing we're taxing, telephone calls, when we tax telephone calls and people reduce their demand for them, where does that demand go? What are the three or four most important places? Now, which of these three or four most important places has a significant distortion? Maybe only one, maybe only two. So we take into account those. The intersection between the items that are significantly affected by the tax you're imposing or the other, distortion, other disturbance you're creating, the things that are affected by it in quantity, but you don't need to catch all of them. You only need to want the ones of them that have significant distortions. The, uh, the combination of a significant DI and significant DXIDC the in way. the context of uh, the your password for economists. Right. Uh, uh, I want to try to dissect this problem a little bit uh, from where you started, because a lot of your the answer you just gave had to do with when you have distortions in other markets and how the general equilibrium and partial equilibrium differ. Uh, what about if the other markets are not distorted? Uh, isn't there still a difference in the price response depending on whether all of the adjustments in prices in other markets are taken into account? Well, I mean, no. I mean, I think that, that we, the great thing is that economics teaches us is that if I put a tax on X1 and X5 moves, and it doesn't have an infinitely elastic supply, so its price moves up or down. As long as that is undistorted, there's no contribution to anything, no efficiency contribution moved by that price, and that's the end of it. Well, what I'm getting at is, uh, uh, let's suppose you have uh, two substitutes, and you put a tax on one of the one of those uh, substitutes, and as that drives up the uh, the price for consumers. Uh, they tend to substitute the other commodity. Yeah. Well, th that ends up driving up the price of the other commodity, and then a Marshallian demand curve would increase as a result in the original market, unless but you'd that's have a not my demand curve. Unless you'd have a different equilibrium. Well, no, it, my demand it, curve is the end point with the tax. I mean, I don't want to go through a whole process of iteration. Think of our tax as a reduced form kind of thing. We're just putting on this tax here. We're maybe squeezing it out of this toothpaste tube. And over here, this other price and quantity move, but there's no distortion. So they move, but there's no distortion, and, and therefore no increment to efficiency cost or benefit as we move along that undistorted market. It's only the distorted other market when it moves the demand price exceeds the supply price or vice versa, and you have uh, an extra efficiency cost coming in this secondary market of a substitute or a complement. But, but the demand curve you're using in the original market to put that tax wedge in is different than a Marshallian curve based on fixed prices in the other market. That's, I just want to make that clear for whoever's listening or reading here that uh, that's still a general equilibrium concept 
of the demand in the original market. Is that right? You can think of it that way, but it's the, the way I think of it is that we start with a zero tax on the thing, and then we put a 10% tax on the thing, and we don't ask, where do you go while this other price stays constant? No. As we're squeezing up that 10% tax, this other price is moving so that this demand curve is, takes into account all these collateral moves of all other prices that are being affected. It's a, it's a, 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 a distinctly reduced form way of thinking but it is very rigorous economics. Would you describe that as a definition of a Harburgarian demand as opposed to a Marshallian? Triangles are all about, you see. And why I say that most people who talk about Harburger triangles are talking about Dupuis triangles, Marshall triangles, Hicks triangles, anybody's triangles but Harburger. <laughs> um, just to briefly uh, discuss your response to that fourth criticism in the uh, uh, three postulates paper, which was basically that consumer surplus only applies for small changes. Uh, I think uh, you briefly demonstrated that if you use the right general equilibrium, I'll call it a general equilibrium concept of demand and supply, then you overcome that problem. Of course. Um, uh, so I guess my question here is, is there really uh, any difference in being able to uh, measure social well-being uh, that doesn't, um, that, that's not limited simply by the ability to econometrically identify all of the indirect effects. Well, I think that uh, uh, <clears throat> it, it is a great leap to think that we will ever have an econometric description of the world that is relevant. You remember the Brookings model and the, uh, what is it, the FRB, somebody else model, the Wharton EFU model, uh, 200 equations and stuff like that. And they can't answer a simple question about tax policy because tax policy is too detailed and too complicated and it, it would have to be a much, much bigger model in order to be able to, to handle uh, these things. So that we are, uh, we have a theory which has generality. When, when we say all goods and services, we mean all goods and services, and including leisure and all that other things that we want and, and uh, preferences for beauty and art and everything else. It's all in our uh, conceptual frame and we're never going to have any econometrics results that are able to enable us to fill in all these things. But if I say that I believe that the demand for gasoline is inelastic, less than unit elastic in the United States, I feel reasonably confident about that. And uh, if I uh, 
say that uh, when I'm dealing with tradables and non-tradables, looking at uh, a, a uh, <clears throat> an elasticity in the neighborhood of a half or 0.4 or 0.6 makes sense. I can defend these things using both theory and what limited evidence I could muster. And I feel reasonably happy uh, riding that horse, if you want to say it that way. Well, let me turn to uh, the fifth criticism you addressed in the Three Postulates paper, which basically had to do with the obsolescence due to revealed preference analysis. Uh, and I think was basically uh, had to do with further refinements that you uh, suggested in uh, related to non-market goods, for example, uh, really didn't lend themselves to a measurement in national income. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, here I want to ask, uh, is it possible to have a little bit further perspective now given some of the more recent developments? Uh, uh, for example, uh, behavioral economics, where they've tried to take account of mistakes in decision-making uh, or ancillary conditions that uh, cause decisions to differ from just a straight utility maximization. Uh, is it possible to bring those kinds of things and, and other non-market issues into, legitimately into, refining the national income measure? There's one thing which is what we do with our national income measure, and I think uh, our measures are the result of a great deal of thought and wisdom on the part of a lot of people why am I buying this coat as consumption and not investment or these pants? Uh, it's arbitrary, obviously. Why, when I wash the dishes at home, it's nothing in the national income accounts, but when the dishwasher washes the dishes in the hotel, it is in the national income accounts. I think these are sensible decisions, and they're made sensible because they lead to numbers that we want to use for a lot of purposes. And if we started to try to stick all the other left outs in, that we would find that our machinery is much less useful for the purposes that we have typically wanted to use it for. Like, so uh, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, firm on, on the national income story now. But on the other, we talked earlier about uh, uh, mistakes and so on, and I mentioned the situation of quite normal situation of worker who has a supply curve of labor and who works in a place. Now, there are three possibilities. One is that he will be allowed to work exactly the number of hours that he chooses to work at the wage that he's being paid. I think that is the least likely of all cases. But the most likely case is that the, the boss is determining the number of hours that are worked, and his preference can be to work more hours or to, be, to work less hours. And our little analysis can tell us if uh, <clears throat> he is working more hours than he wants to, uh, 
if, if he's asked to work too many hours, he won't work. But there's a range of hours where the surplus that he gets from the first hours that he works exceeds the negative surplus that comes from the excess hours that he works. And so the gain exceeding the loss, he still chooses to work. I think that's perfectly fine. It might be called a mistake. Uh, I think it's natural economics. It's been with, with us for forever. And uh, th so that kind of mistakes I have no problem with. Now, uh, when you get to other things, I mean, one of the early works in behavioral economic con concern, probability preferences. And people like two-thirds, one-third bets more than they like 50-50 bets and more than they like 10-90 bets. And uh, I have a hard time squeezing that into some kind of economics that I find useful and relevant I want to talk to policymakers about. But I think this, it's interesting aspect of human behavior. And uh, uh, there are these examples that uh, Kahneman talks about that they, they offer, they ask people, how much are you going to willing to pay me for this cup? And they say $1.50. And then you give them the cup and then they say, what are you willing to sell it for? $2.50. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't pay $1.50 for it. <laughs> but, but that seems to be a, a, a statistically provable proposition that people do behave that way. I don't know what to do with that in my supply and demand. I, I want to use them. I'm going to still use a supply price and a demand price in my own way. But uh, there we go. So you feel like profit maximization, utility maximization still give us a reasonable enough approximation for purposes of applied welfare economics? It's a tricky thing. I think that we should pretty much take people's behavior as reflecting their choice of a comfort zone or something like that, that, that this is uh, what they uh, what, what, what they really want. And uh, I think our maximization models, as we model them, would have people running around doing all sorts of minuscule adjustments and whatnot in response to all kinds of things. Now, we know that people don't behave that way. So, uh, I'm r ready to think that uh, people are smarter than those representations of their behavior in that they value their comfort, they value not having to look at the stock market page every day, they value all these things which are incredibly difficult for us to take into account, but which lead to their having 
crazy behavior like me that I make stock transactions like four times a year uh, because those are the days that I look uh, <laughs> or something. Uh, but I don't think that's irrational. And as much as I'm conducting this interview for the Annual Review of Resource Economics, I feel like I have to ask a few questions about environmental and resource economics. And I realize this really isn't one of your areas of concentration. Uh, but as you know, in environmental economics, there's a, a lot of work on trying to value non-market goods uh, with various approaches, uh, stated preferences or travel cost methods that measure it indirectly. Uh, do you have any thoughts or criticisms on that embellishment of applied welfare economics? Well, I think that what, what you have are, let's call it, ingenious ways of getting under a problem. And I think some of these ways are just somebody's smart idea, so to speak, and when you turn over that rock, you see too many snakes under the rock that you don't want to do it. But let's consider the case of parks, which I'm a little bit familiar with, and the, the, and the travel cost. Uh, I think it's kind of elegant. The, you have people who live very far away, and they come a long distance, and they pay a long, uh, a high price in terms of time and fuel costs and all of that, in order to visit this park. And then you have people from nearer, and then you have people from nearer, and then you have people from still nearer. Now. If we correct for income and whatnot, let's say they all have the same incomes to make life simple, that these guys who live far away are at the top of that demand curve because they're paying a high price, and then the next guys are paying a little lower price, and the next guys are paying a little lower price. So we're building a demand curve not from one set of people's behavior, but from a bunch of different sets of people's behavior who are paying different prices, but who we try to identify as being equivalent or having income corrected for in other ways. I think that is elegant economics. And uh, uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, anybody can find uh, uh, a way to pick a hole if you want that, that say the people who live far away uh, and who come are higher income people and they place a higher value on the scenery and the this and the end of that and then the other people are not that same uh, so uh, if, if, if you're out to uh, nitpick it's easy to do. On the other hand, I still find this uh, serious economics and elegant economics. I want to turn a little bit to a discussion of distortions and maybe just first definitions. Uh, would you characterize a distortion as any departure from a Pareto equilibrium and usually defining the Pareto equilibrium as some kind of competitive equilibrium? Well, my... Uh, 
my natural statement of a distortion is a gap between a supply price and a demand price, or a gap between some activity, its marginal social benefit and its marginal social cost. Uh, that's what I would call a distortion. So uh, that supply and demand curve that you're talking about uh, typically depends on what the allocation of resources is, right? My, the question I want to get at is, would when you define a distortion, is that with respect to basically the status quo allocation of resources and endowments? And is that something economists should be maybe a little bit, little bit more upfront about? Well, no, I think uh, it, it, I'm, I'm, my distortion, my main distortions are taxes and subsidies, and I see that uh, they depend on what the law was, and, and uh, uh, allocations of resources in the economy are changing all the time, and these damn taxes are there. Of course, as the allocations change, the demands change, and the measure that you would get would change, but that means only that your underlying givens of the situation are changing through time, and we, we have to live with that. But in cases where distribution is important, uh, certainly uh, reallocations that take place based on even things like uh, your concept of the, uh, uh, of the essential uh, goods uh, for the poverty of stricken people, uh, that's going to change the supply and demand curves a little bit in their intersection, right? I mean, not the, the way I see economics is that we have these supply and demand curves, which are changing utterly through time. And our equilibrium is something that we never see because the, 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 the givens don't stay put long enough for us to see a full, full equilibrium of the whole economy under circumstance A and under circumstance B and under circumstance B, C. So we see these dynamic movements taking place. And uh, sometimes, I mean, God only knows, look at, look at our uh, 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 IT industry, iPods and iPads and Twitters and all of that, none of which existed uh, 10 years ago, let's say. And uh, they have squeezed their way in, into our economy. Uh, I find it quite natural. Let's say it doesn't, I don't think of it as a challenge. That of course, when a new good comes in, it's going to divert demand away from other goods, and the demand structure is going to change. And if you're measuring uh, a triangle under a demand curve for for landline telephone service 20 years ago, it's going to be a bigger demand for for that, and probably the triangle will be bigger. But now. Uh, You've got a much more elastic curve for the landline and, and much lower demand for landlines in general. And so the triangle is going to be smaller. I said, yeah, that's right. Oh, but uh, some of that's naturally evolving of the economy and, and some of it is affected by changes in government policies. Less than you would think. I mean, government policies on the whole are... Uh, 
to, to think of them as changing the whole thing. I think I, way back, I was worrying, was worrying about taxes. I found that for a period of several decades, the U.S. hit a 50% marginal tax rate at something like five to six GDPs per capita. That's pretty low for hitting a 50% tax rate. When you think of applying it in developing countries, no developing country would dare fit have a 50% tax rate at six per capita incomes. Okay, and I looked, and at that level, the Lorenz curve before tax and after tax, you practically needed a magnifying glass to see the difference between the two of them. Uh, so that's, uh, that's how powerful our progressive tax system, and this was just for the income tax, it wasn't for all taxes, uh, how, how big an effect it had on, on, on the distribution of income. It wasn't that great. So just with respect to distortions in general, would, would your opinion be that uh, you should try to eliminate distortions where you find them? Given political feasibility. No, I, 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 think, it, I think it should, uh, it ought to think economic policy ought to be governed by benefit and benefits and costs in, in each and every case. And uh, there is no question but what the big distortions on the whole are a much more inviting target for reducing global efficiency cost than the little ones. The, the, the uh, uh, this cost of a given distortion varies with the square of the distortion. So you can see getting a 50% tax down to 10% is powerful. And getting it from 10% to zero, forget it, you know. <laughs> What's your th uh, thought about the practicality of the Lipsy-Lancaster argument that uh, if you have a distortion that's politically infeasible to remove, then other markets ought to be distorted to get a second best optimum. Well, uh, I wouldn't put it that way, but I would say that when we make policy, we should take existing distortions into account and as we look to the future, we should project time paths for these distortions. And if we think the tariff is going to go down from 80% to 10%, as it did in some Latin American countries in the 70s, let's say, uh, if we think that in advance, well, we should build that into our story. But if we think it's not going to change, then we should build that into our story. And in the case where we think it's not going to change, uh, I would say Lipsy and Lancaster have to be right. Uh, but I take it also that uh, you agree with the Davis and Winston idea that uh, when you're looking at, for example, changing a policy uh, in a specific sector, you probably don't have to take account of uh, distortions in remote markets in other sectors along the lines of your insignificant DI or insignificant DXIDZ Yeah, well, that's idea. what it sounds like an application of, yeah. exactly. Um, 
Well, much of your conceptual work uh, starts with an assumption that all the distortions can be represented as taxes, and then you have some other arguments about how you can represent other distortions in terms of equivalent taxes or subsidies. I guess I just want to ask a little bit about uh, the practicality of that in some cases when it comes to applied welfare economics. You take, for example, uh, uh, monopoly distortions. There are certain conditions if a monopolist behaves where the uh, distortion is, uh, is a percentage markup, uh, you can treat it like some kind of a neutral thing, but Not if, well, right, but you treat it like a private tax that's collected by a private company. And I guess my question there is, for applied purposes, empirical purposes, let's say, uh, how can you evaluate the changes in that tax if that monopolist is operating by some different approach like equating marginal, marginal cost with marginal revenue uh, without getting at or without information about the cost structure of the monopolist, which is typically proprietary? Life is tough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's say at one level, there are many, many, many entities that have some degree of control over the prices of their products. That is to say, they face somewhat downward sloping demand curves. Uh, we know better than to think that they only look at their existing competitors when they estimate the long-run demand curve facing themselves, that they consider potential entry as well as potential expansion of production by existing competitors in determining the elasticity of that slope. So uh, if you want to think about monopoly power in the company world, I would say uh, let's look at profits that are measured, look at the return to capital that is measured, profits plus everything and say how much of that can plausibly be thought of as monopoly profits. And you're not going to have a technical way to say that, but I think you can say a lot of things. You can identify some industries as pretty competitive and figure the median one of them is earning a competitive rate of return. So. If somebody's earning more than a competitive rate, more than that rate of return, that's a maximum amount that you could assign as monopoly profits. Then what you want to do is take those monopoly profits and spread them over the whole value of the goods and services because the, it's not a the profits are not part of monopoly profits are not officially part of the return to capital at all. They're the return of an excise tax, so they ought to be treated, turned into an excise tax by spreading over the whole thing. And when you do that, you get a lot of insights about the economy. And uh, uh, this is somewhat important in deriving our economic opportunity cost of capital for cost-benefit purposes. 
if we think there's a lot of monopoly in the economy, we ought to make that spread. One of the things that many of us tend to do in making that spread, you see you can spread it over all, or you can pretend that materials come in fixed proportions into the product. And if you do that, you can spread monopoly profits just over the return to labor and capital, which makes it simpler. And you're just dealing with two big factors of production, and, and uh, you can handle it uh, more nicely. But uh, I think uh, the way, definitely the way I would go about looking for monopoly elements in an economy is I would look at, uh, in, in the business sector of an economy, I would look at the profits and seeing if they are uh, substantially and repeatedly in excess of what that economy might reveal as a competitive return. And some of that, you see, will be, if you have an invention, a new product, it, 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 it's, it's monopoly all right, but it isn't something that you want to fight particularly, like new drugs. So there are more problems there uh, that uh, uh, I think in the drug area we seem to want monopoly profits to prevail for a while and we think of them as a good incentive for innovation in the drug and other industries and so uh, kind of that doesn't stop it from being monopoly profits, but it may stop you from doing what you might otherwise want to do about the monopoly profits. But there may be lots of people who could be helped by a particular drug that they can't get access to because of 90% profit margin on some patented pharmaceutical. Absolutely, and but then you, you mean there you've got a real problem. I mean, uh, if if uh, if we wanted to uh, nationalize or internationalize the pharmaceutical industry, would we be getting better results than what we get with what we've got? And, and again, the length of time of patents is another story uh, that uh, uh, the, the uh, it, it seems to be a very good thing in the drug industry that, that, that these patents do run out and we have generics all over the place. So it seems to be a question of time before they get to be cheap and uh, the issue to which you refer is something within this time frame. I've done a fair amount of work in the pesticide industry which is doesn't have quite as great uh, patent protection as does pharmaceuticals, but it has, it's probably next. Uh, and there are a number of cases where after, pesticides have more longevity in market life than do pharmaceuticals in most cases. There are cases where a, a pesticide has gone seven years past patent expiration and still has a monopoly uh, because of certain ways to manipulate the regulatory process, I think. And uh, those seem like clear questions where there's a distributional issue that should be corrected. Does that make sense? 
it seems to. I mean, that that uh, the question is, why doesn't somebody get in there and uh, take advantage of the freedom to produce this good? And you're saying, well, maybe it isn't real freedom. Maybe something's impeding this freedom. And what is that? And what can be done about that? Um, again, on this uh, issue, going back to uh, the review for or annual review of resource economics and some of the issues that are related to externalities and uh, public amenities, uh, my impression is you've pretty much focused on externalities only to the extent of basic needs externalities. Uh, but I wonder if you have an opinion about uh, the environmental literature where there are uh, externalities related to pollution and non-market goods of that type. Yeah. And are they, what's your opinion of that literature? Well, A, uh, I know that pollution externalities exist and I have seen them at first hand in uh, cement factories blowing smoke and ruining agricultural, uh, not powder, it's kind of dust that goes in the air and it ruins the, the agricultural industry for miles around and things like that. And we have externalities in the water area all the time, people grabbing water that they somehow ideally would not be grabbing, but. Uh, uh, they do it and enforce uh, uh, serious costs on downstream users. And uh, I certainly think that we can have a lot to say about this. In the, in the water issue, we can have regulations having to do with the water table and usage of the water table and so on. In the streamflow irrigation, we have a big problem connected with how you enforce upstream users to leave enough water for downstream users. And uh, uh, it's easy to say, but maybe not easy to do. But uh, I did a evaluation of a dam in Argentina, probably in the in the middle '60s or late '60s or something like that, the Ulum Dam, and uh, they had strict rules about. Uh, leaving enough water for downstream uses in the San Juan River in Argentina in the 18th, in the 1960s. So uh, I don't know how well that was enforced, you know what I mean? But uh, I have seen other places where uh, there didn't seem to be any rule at all and where the upstream users just grabbed this water and screwed the other guys. And uh, it obviously is, uh, uh, it, it's an interesting economic problem, but I think even more, it's a law and economics problem. That how do you get this thing with 
some reasonable solution implanted. It's not a perfect solution, but a reasonable solution. Um, one thing I have to ask uh, for my welfare economist friends, as well as some of my friends that are really uh, promoting benefit cost analysis, is can you describe the difference in applied welfare economics and benefit cost analysis with a short answer? I noticed in your uh, Ely lecture, you described that difference as getting small. Uh, but I notice also that you you indicated that you were involved in applied welfare economics for about a decade longer than benefit cost analysis. So there must be a difference. Well, I mean, it, it, uh, not, benefit cost analysis is a sub-branch of applied welfare economics. And I was early involved in the tax side of things and the agricultural price support analysis and stuff like that. And then in approximately a decade after I came out of Chicago, I got more and more involved in uh, discount rates for cost-benefit analysis and in the measurement of costs and benefits for that purpose and in uh, setting up piece by piece, I think. But uh, I think we have a coherent, rigorous in its own way, uh, system of benefit cost analysis with assumptions and all of that, and that our system builds out of a tradition that goes back to Ricardo and Mill and Marshall and uh, Slutsky and Mead and all these guys and is not full of quizzical innovations that uh, 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 says uh, we're, we're revolutionizing something. We're not revolutionizing. We're building further on a very elegant structure that was made by people smarter than ourselves, you know? <laughs> uh, so a couple of <coughs> quick answer questions. Is there really any difference in the way, for example, intertemporal problems are handled in applied welfare economics versus benefit cost analysis when they're done correctly? My quick answer is that most of my work in applied welfare economics has not had this intertemporal story. And the work in benefit cost analysis, because of the way you deal with profiles over time, is utterly essential. Mm -hmm. But I think that when we derive the economic opportunity cost of capital, uh, we do so in a way that, to me, makes perfect sense to be shifted to almost any applied welfare economic problem. The issue is that when you're dealing with an economic opportunity cost of capital, you absolutely must say where that capital is coming from. and. Uh, there are infinite reasons why the capital market of a country is the sensible place and that therefore you have, you displace investment, you may stimulate a bit of savings, 
and you draw some capital in from abroad, and those are the natural sources. But if somebody comes to me and says, well, I am going to have a country in which the government never gets money from the capital market and always gets it from the value-added tax, then I'll say, well, I'll have this weighted average with the value-added tax is my story. It doesn't, there's nothing God-given about the capital market. It's just, the, it's both realistic and sensible. <laughs> uh, but if somebody uh, has a specific thing, then you have the other kind of a story. Uh, what does a country do when it gets a cheap loan from abroad? We say, we don't use that, the interest rate on that loan as the opportunity cost. We at least pretend you could dump that loan on the country's capital market and get the country's rate of return. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, we would want to uh, evaluate any project using that loan, using the standard procedure, using the country's standard economic opportunity cost of capital. So is a is a major differentiator of benefit cost analysis is that it's about a specific project measured against a specific counterfactual? Well, I think benefit cost analysis can be applied to taxes and subsidies and whatnot, as well as to, to projects. So from that point of view, uh, I don't know, but uh, let's say in general, I think of our story as having in the middle of it a profile of benefits and costs over time. And this profile is itself the difference between two moving pictures, one being how the economy would have evolved if we didn't do this thing and the other is how the economy is likely to involve, evolve if we do this thing. And the profile is the difference between those two guys. And I think uh, you can see that it doesn't have to be a dam or something like that or a park. It can be a change in the law. It can be a this or that, and, and you can still make those two moving pictures, take the difference, take the present value, and uh, off and away. So uh, would you say there's really no difference between uh, the two in terms of accounting for indirect effects and using the uh, general equilibrium concept of uh, measurement? Yes, well, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated thing. I mean, when you have uh, a project that, that's going to change a whole valley owing to irrigation or power dam or something like that. There are a bunch of effects that you, are, by God, have to take into account. And, and, and they might not even be thought of as ancillary, but they certainly ramify around and affect people's lives in areas that are not immediately linked to the irrigation or the power story. Uh, 
Now, when you're analyzing some general policy, uh, when I used to analyze price support type policies, I have a supply curve and a demand curve and say, well, we have a support price up here and then we do this and then, well, how do we handle that surplus? Do we put uh, acreage controls? Do we put quantitative controls? Do we have a two price policy as one Secretary Brannon once had. That was a fun problem, you know, to play with. And it could all be done with just a supply and demand curve. Uh, I think it would be spoiled if I made it more complicated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Are, are these some of the aspects why it's so difficult for practitioners of benefit-cost analysis to agree on the methods and calculations? Or do you have other reasons? <laughs> I, 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 well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, there are plenty of people who are, uh, I think, just playing off base in this story. And uh, we talked about some of those at lunch and, and uh, uh, people who make serious use of exponentially declining distributional weights have not thought through their problem. That's the way I feel. It's just they have not. They can be very smart people, but they are using these, this gimmick for some nice purpose that gives them a nice answer, and they're not looking to the left or right as to the other implications that it has, and I think that is a mistake. Uh, and and uh, I think that the people who run around with four or five discount rates and changing through time and all of that have not thought through that problem either. Uh, I think furthermore that as you get down to the specifics of a given area, irrigation projects, or a very specific project like a tunnel and road that was going from Argentina to Chile that we were just worrying about there. Uh, it's easier to get agreement that, you know, some, some of these broad disagreements uh, disappear as you focus on a specific thing. So uh, I think that uh, on the whole, uh, If you take serious goal, we were talking about at lunch, that in the area of projects, I have had many years of experience in this area. And my big message to my bosses is, please do not try to use cost-benefit analysis on 100% of your projects. Maybe 30%, maybe 35%. There are some, like national defense and other things, that we are utterly incompetent to do. And yet you have to have a national defense operation. So, uh, but don't look at our machinery as the thing to give you an answer. And then there is a nice area in between where I want them to be involved and tell me 
please institute 25% per ton as the shadow price of carbon emissions into the air. This 25% is mandated by the authorities. It is not a measure of how bad they are, but it is a guideline that helps that country stop paying more than 25 to, to, uh, to, to refuse to pay more than 25 in order to uh, prevent another ton from going into the air, but being happy to spend up to 25 to prevent another ton. And there you get this very old standard economic, economic efficiency story that you are saving money and getting your objective at a, quote, minimum cost. And I think uh, that it, it is just fine. And I think exactly the same kind of thing where the authorities have to tell us is how we should handle basic needs, externalities, or similar. That it, it's one thing for us to hand to the authorities an efficiency analysis and say, efficiency cost is $100 million. Is your whole other stuff, other potential benefits that you're thinking of that we haven't taken into account big enough to overcome that? That's one answer. But at another level, there's a little more involvement where they can say, well, we're not willing to pay more than 40% to improve the housing of people in the first to the second decile, or more than 30% to improve the housing from the second to the third decile, extra amount over and above what would normally be counted in an efficiency thing. So they define that externality, and we then uh, know how to apply it. So we have the things where we know how to do everything, the things where we need this kind of help from government to give us shadow prices or similar uh, things to, to weigh uh, uh, distributional uh, externalities or, or uh, basic needs externalities. Uh, or pollution costs, or pollution be pollution externalities, let's call it, we do that. And then we've got the other one where we just have an empty void and, and where we should not even, for the moment, dare to enter. This, this area here is room for us to play. Um, Inasmuch as you were the founding president of the benefit, uh, the Society for Benefit Cost Analysis, uh, do you have any thoughts about how that organization can be effective in getting benefit cost analysis increasingly accepted where it should be? <clears throat> Brief answer. <laughs> yeah, well, hard. Uh, I think that this is a current symbol of a degree of professionalization that was not there 15 years ago. And the degree of enthusiasm that we have with people from academic world, people from overseas, people from 
national government and even state and local governments are coming to these things. Uh, I think that it, it's uh, very heartwarming to me that uh, we have this extra uh, bound of uh, a range of communication among us, and I think that is going to help bring us toward my ultimate ideal, which is more professional consensus on these matters so that we can really uh, be a little bit more like medical doctors and, and uh, where you, yes, yes you can, there are differences in the quality of doctors and all of that, but on the whole, what do you do? You go to a doctor and the doctor tells you what's wrong with you and tells you how to cure it. Well, there's a range of areas where we can do this and we need to get over all sorts of bickerings and come to a more solid professional agreement on that area. Um, I want to talk a little bit about discount rates before we lose our time. And I, I know your thoughts is, is that the discount rate that should be used, which is so critical in benefit cost analysis, is something that ought to be a weighted average of the sources of capital from which it comes. But the uh, question I want to ask, and again, this is on behalf of my role here with, with the Annual Review of Resource Economics, is when it comes to questions about environmental and resource issues. Uh, for example, you have problems in some environmental and resource issues. For example, uh, global warming, uh, depletion of a, of a uh, depletable natural resource, where the major issues arise maybe 100 years down the road. And a, a capital rate of return can make that 100 years down the road of minuscule importance and considerations. Uh, well, I just want to... Capital rate of return can build up to a huge sum 100 years from now. Well, depending... I mean, just think of it the other way, that, 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 that uh, uh, you, you, the society, can benefit by 8%, let's say, by dumping the money in the capital market, and uh, why should one turn that down, so to speak? You, you, the cost-benefit analysis says that if we raise money from the capital market, we are, in fact, losing 8% cumulatively per year as we go forward. So. The, this is costs and benefits. We're measuring the product of the displaced investments that doesn't happen. We're measuring the supply price of the savings that does happen. And we're measuring the marginal cost of the funds drawn from abroad. All of these are genuine costs. And the project has not paid off unless it covers those costs. To me, it's that simple. But the major issue is whether the resource runs out in 100 years or global warming causes a huge disaster 100 years from now. Uh, that, well, that's I mean, what ends up being but, valued. No, but, but uh, where are we going? Well, the question uh, is how much should you take that into account? And particularly if there's loss of human life that occurs down the road because of it. Uh, with a very high discount rate, uh, 
that ends up not being very important in the calculation. I, I guess my question here is, uh, I know you're on record as saying that economists aren't uh, qualified to judge income distributions, which, which I agree. Uh, is this something like an income distributional consideration where economists really aren't qualified to judge the uh, social well-being of 100 years down the road versus today in making those, uh, those choices? Well, I mean, let's start with the capacity to predict it. Uh, it seems to me that for any of those things, we are facing a distribution that looks, you know, as wide as the world, so to speak. It's, it's, it's tremendously difficult. And my instinct is to say we approach these problems as current decision-making problems like putting a price on carbon emissions. Now, if, if you put a price that's enormously high on carbon emissions, all kinds of industries are going to have to shut down. The whole economy is going to go to hell. But if you put a modest price, as we have in the world, uh, that uh, things seem to go on and economic progress seems to take place, maybe that people will decide to raise that price. And, and uh, uh, in, in the case of the Kyoto Agreement, the way it works, the quantity kind of is the key variable and the price flows out of the market. Okay, that's fine. Two ways to do the same thing. Uh, so uh, I think in each kind of case you might want to talk about, thinking about sensible, plausible, feasible policies to deal with. Something that's going to run out, what do you do? Well, you save some of it, don't you? Now, the idea that you will save some of this thing that's supposed to run out will at least extend the time when you'll have it. Uh, the, if something is going to run out, you might want to tax it heavily in order to uh, extend the life of the limited sum amounts that are available. But if you're talking about natural resources, what people are going to say is that uh, uh, when I was a kid, the Sunday supplements nearly every year said we only have enough oil for 10 years. And there it was, and they had proved reserves 10 years, you know, and here we are uh, 90 years later nearly, and, uh, and uh, uh, we're still finding more. But there's an interesting thing, too. When I, when I worked on the Paley Commission, uh, they had the thought that shale oil would come in at a price not too much higher, you know, maybe double or maybe triple at most where the price was then, which was really quite low. Well, now shale has come, but it took a hell of a lot bigger price for it to happen. But uh, it is happening, and uh, I think a lot of people have faith that uh, technology is going to run ahead of the exhaustion of carbon fuels, that uh, 
we are going to find other ways of getting energy than that before those things get to the point of really drastically changing our way of life. So I know at lunch you mentioned that uh, you felt like these discount rates that some people use of more like 2%, 3% uh, are inappropriate for these kinds of problems. And I gather uh, that to some extent you feel like that's the case because there's going to be evolving technology and, and evolving possibilities. You know, I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns here that, that uh, how can you discount at 2% when you are actually incurring a cost of 8% from square one when you take the money out? I mean, if, you, if you're discounting for a purpose that does not entail any cost or investment at the present time, I, I'm not going to say I don't care, but I'm ready to put that in some other box. It's not part of my cost-benefit analysis. Where, where I feel strongly about this is where we are justifying the extraction of money over time, which has a demonstrable cost of 6, 7, 8, 10 percent, and then say, well, we're going to discount the benefits back at 2. I gather, too, from some of your other writings, you, you mentioned this broad spectrum of possibilities that probably spans all the alternatives. Uh, I, I gather from some of your other writings that your opinion about uh, considering risk in these kinds of problems uh, probably should focus only on trying to evaluate the risk-neutral implications because we're having a hard enough time quantifying those without getting into any kind of social risk aversion. Well, I have two answers to that. Number one, that uh, I believe that society, government, America, Britain, European market should be neutral with respect to risk because no project, no program is big enough to take them. You see, you have a, 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 a relationship of social utility to social wealth, which has this kind of a shape. And when you insure your house, you're up here when you got the house, and you're down here when you're not. So there's a big arc there in between. But you don't insure your television set because you're on practically on a tangent. You're, okay, everything is a television set for me as far as government projects are concerned. They're small enough compared with national wealth, which is four or five times GDP, uh, that uh, it, the differences are, 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 are trivial. So that's the, the uh, problem with respect to uh, that part of the thing. I had another one in mind, which is currently escaping me. Um, well, I was going to ask you, would that apply even to uh, something like the effects of uh, global warming with the magnitude of uh, implications that some people claim that it's going to have, where it's actually big relative to national income? Well, uh, I, I, I'm going to go quietly here and say that uh, 
we are spending, the world is spending on issues connected with global warming right now, and it can spend quite a bit more than what it is spending right now without a great uh, turbulence, let's say, in, 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 in the world economy. Uh, but uh, I don't think the distributions are such that anybody has a right to say that uh, uh, given this distribution, we should look at this worst point or this uh, 10th percentile point and spend half our GDP uh, trying to deal with it. Uh, uh, I think uh, we've got enough problems. I mean, it's interesting that uh, uh, how much interest China is taking in some of these things when it is still the biggest polluter in terms of uh, carbon emissions, probably, but you can see a sort of a trend, and you can see in the United States there's more attention to this, I think, today than there was 20 years ago. And, and uh, the countries that have signed the Kyoto Accord have, uh, some of them have done pretty well. In, in, in uh, controlling emissions and all of that. So the nuclear thing has been a big, uh, uh, a big shock. I mean, the Japan thing, because nuclear was high on the list of long-term solutions. And uh, uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of people are shying away from that. And, uh, I want to try to wrap this up pretty soon. I want to just ask you a couple of kind of general uh, welfare economic questions. Uh, does, uh, for example, does the rising concern in the country these days regard uh, with respect to the Occupy Wall Street movement and maybe the rising Gini coefficient have implications for any changes in applied welfare economic practices that should take place? I don't think it, it, it has anything to do with applied welfare economic practices. I think that, uh, I mean, let's say, personally, I have thought from the beginning that it would be just fine if we let the Bush tax cuts expire as they were intended to be, I mean, it was written that they would expire. Let them expire. And, uh, uh, our crazy politics uh, seems to get in the way, but that has nothing to do with applied welfare economics. And uh, I think most uh, public finance people uh, see no escape from uh, handling our uh, Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security problems by some sort of modification. Why do people say that if Social Security were to be increasing at 1% per year in real value, that that would be taking away something from somebody? It's changing the formula, but it's having increases over time.
in the future. And you have solutions like that at hand that will solve large chunks of this problem that uh, people just f refuse to look in the face. It's incredible. How about the uh, recent political discussion, which seems to be putting a lot of emphasis on not, uh, well, in part, those below the poverty line, but perhaps even more so those that are at the top 1% of the income distribution. Should there be any special consideration uh, in applied welfare economics because of that? Well, it's not applied welfare economics again. I mean, if, uh, every society has to judge what it deems to be a reasonable, the way I look at, at public finance is that the society decides what is going to be done by way of government and social institutions. These institutions have a cost and somebody has, that cost has to be distributed among the people. And broadly speaking, they have to pay 100% of it. You know, now or later it has to be paid. And uh, I think that uh, the uh, expiry of the Bush tax cuts would be, for me, perfectly reasonable thing to do, which entails higher taxes on this upper income group, bringing them back to where they were in the Clinton administration. Uh, in a lot of my writings, I've said that I felt that evidence was pretty strong that tax rates above 50 percent were, were hard to justify mm -hmm. because their negative implications in many directions were such. Uh, here in the United States, if we were to get back to 39.5 on federal, we've got 11 on California. Uh, so, granted, we got a little deduction there, but 40, we're at 45 at least in California if we get up to 39.5. So, in any case, uh, I certainly have no uh, think, thought that uh, uh, applied welfare economics as a discipline would have anything to say or anything much to say about changes in taxes within that sort of a range. But isn't there an interesting question in terms of, uh, is there really an impact that takes place on uh, employment, investment, uh, and uh, other things that can be measured as an impact of a change in the uh, progression of the tax policy? Uh, in, in general, no. I mean, in general, we make the assumption, and, and I believe we are right in making the assumption, that what isn't spent on consumption is spent on investment. And uh, don't forget, in this country, we're living beyond our means all the time with, with the borrowing we do from abroad. Uh, so uh, you, the line you're taking, I think, is sort of an effective demand thing that these guys save more and these guys save less. But uh, uh, this might go for this very moment. I think there is a tremendous gap 
in how to handle moments of serious recession or depression. What does that do to our economic opportunity, cost of capital, of labor, etc.? And there is no serious treatment of that subject that I know of. And it is very difficult. And there's a good reason. The good reason being that most of our analysis looks to the future and that looking to the future, we say, well, things are going to be normal, average. And therefore, we deal with our future problems in that way. Uh, and when we get into a situation of uh, recession, as we are in now, you've got lots of problems. But I'll give you another story. Our standard assumption is that if we create 100 jobs, we're going to take pretty much 100 jobs away from somebody else. That's the norm, that, these, that the labor force would be in full equal, labor market would be in equilibrium in the alternative moving picture and in our moving picture. And therefore, uh, they're, they're, we're, we're not going to absorb any unemployed by creating 100 jobs normally. When we had the Great Depression and we had 25-plus percent unemployment, most people would agree that if we create 100 jobs, we'll probably absorb maybe 100 unemployed, maybe more than 100 unemployed, maybe a little less than 100 unemployed, but lots of unemployed. Now, my con I've said this also for 40 years, my classes that it is not true that we're absorbing zero unemployed up to 5 or 6% unemployment rate. And when it gets to 7, we're like it was 25. That thing has to go gradually. It has to be that uh, if we absorb zero unemployed at 5%, maybe we'll absorb 5% uh, of, of, of uh, unemployed at uh, seven percent unemployment, and maybe we'll absorb fifteen percent of unemployed at ten percent unemployment, or something like that. Something of that kind. Never that you create a hundred jobs and you absorb at, at a circumstance like this, and you absorb a hundred unemployed. Which, by the way, uh, is only implicit in the way people talk. But certainly, the way people talk, you would think that uh, every extra job created absorbs <laughs> that much unemployed. I, I think we look at the net figures of new employment, and, and that's the number of net jobs that have really been created. In closing, I want to ask you just a couple of questions about the Chicago School. Uh, in which you were so instrumental in, in building that department in a, in a very formative time. Uh, in your PBS interview with, uh, in Commanding Heights in 2000, you described the Chicago School, I believe, as of about the middle of the last century, middle, late last century, as treating economics as a science, understanding the market forces, and ordering them in a way that harnesses those forces for the benefit of society. But I noticed in your interview with David Levy, uh, in the region in 1999, you seem to have a note of lament 
and I know you disagreed with this a little bit at lunch, but basically that you said today policy econom economics is very little represented in Chicago. What are your thoughts well, about that? Is that is absolutely true. I mean, my, my statement at lunch was that in rather than policy economics, we have uh, these two big fields of uh, a modern, quite stylized, but very professionally uh, valued macro with Bob Lucas and uh, Lars Hansen, Nancy Stokey, Cochran, and so on. And then we have another side, which is more micro-oriented. I call it human resources with Becker and Heckman and Topel and, and uh, 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 others in the in, 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 in the department but we don't have uh, the same concentration of policy oriented people back in those old days we had Friedman policy oriented in money macro we had Schultz and D. Gale Johnson in uh, agricultural economics policy oriented. Myself and Shostat in public finance, et cetera, policy oriented. Uh, George Stigler, at least semi policy oriented. Uh, Harry Johnson, uh, Bob Mundell uh, in international trade, Jacob Frankel. Uh, you know, in policy economics, it's hard to see when there ever was a department that was so thick with people who were deeply interested in policy and, and in robust e applying robust economics to policy. Now that part uh, is now no longer uh, a, an, an accurate description of Chicago, which does not stop it from being one of the top three or four institutions in the world. Just in conclusion, uh, I wanted to ask you if uh, the decreasing emphasis on policy economics and perhaps the increasing uh, uh, role of reduced form econometrics versus structural econometrics uh, has led to less understanding of markets and their interactions and as a result uh, any decline in the ability to, among our newer younger members of the profession to practice applied welfare economics? Well, I, uh, I will not deal with the, the potential causes you mentioned. If they probably have an influence, but I would not give them more than 5% or so of the causal thing. The causal thing is that we have no, our economics no longer emphasizes the fundamentals in the way that it did when I was a graduate student and an undergraduate, probably when you were a graduate student and an undergraduate. People are not taught to think like an economist in the same way that they used to be. And uh, they, they are not taught to use their eyes and ears to in their sense of smell to perceive economic situations. And I see this all around the world. 
they, they, they can run through mathematical proofs of something, but they don't detect its counterpart in the real world and even less what to do about it. And that is a big lack that uh, uh, you read my Lee lecture, which was a, one of a several sermons that I have preached on this subject, and uh, I haven't changed my opinion at all about that. I think that good, robust economics built on diagnostics and the application of fundamentals is the way that economics has produced its greatest things in the past, and I think this is the way that it will continue to produce if only we keep on that track. Well, Professor Harberger, on behalf of the uh, Annual Review of Resource Economics, I thank you for participating in this interview. I greatly appreciate your willingness to share your knowledge and wisdom uh, in the subjects of welfare economics and benefit cost analysis, and it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you. My pleasure.